Psalm 45 is a celebration of the king's wedding. Following a description of the king, his bride is introduced. The bride is exhorted to forget her people and her father's house. Her groom, the king, is now her lord. The psalm ends with a description of the queen in her glory as she is brought into the palace. And while this psalm depicts the real-life events of one of Israel's kings, it is also prophetic and serves as a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And so we've entitled Psalm 45, The Marriage Song of the Anointed. The Marriage Song of the Anointed. Now, according to the superscription, the psalm was written for the choir director. It was set to the tomb of Shashanim, or lilies. It is a masculine or didactic psalm, providing moral instruction. The authors of this psalm are the sons of Korah, one of the priestly families. As well, Psalm 45 is known as a song of love. So let's consider Psalm 45, the marriage song of the anointed. We'll begin in verse 1 with the prelude. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now, verse 1 stands as a preface to this entire psalm. It tells us who is writing, what he is writing about, and how he writes. The author introduces himself as a court scribe who has composed this psalm for the king's wedding. He speaks from his heart overflowing with a good theme. The verb overflows means to stir or bubbling over, referring to the overflow of his emotions. The theme is good and is defined as concerning the king. Now, while the composition is oral, that is, it's recited, he says the tongue is his pen. So he orally spoke this and then later recorded it. He identifies himself as a ready writer or a scribe, meaning, and the word ready meaning that he was a skilled. So this son of Korah, one of the priestly families, had become a scribe and was very skilled at his task. Now, in verses 2 through 8, we meet the royal bridegroom. The royal bridegroom. Verse 2 to 8. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. Now, the thesis of this psalm is about the king's supremacy. You are fairer than the sons of men. Now, the word fair means beautiful. You are more beautiful than the sons of men. This king is the ideal of humanity. He towers above all other men. His greatness is because grace is poured upon his lips. Now, in other words, grace denotes what the king says. and what, In other words, he is gracious in his speech. He speaks graciously. And the fact that he speaks graciously means that he is gracious. His graciousness leads us to the conclusion that he has divine blessing. Hence, God has blessed you forever. 
He's full of grace because he's been blessed. Just as Christ, our King, is full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And he gives us grace from his fullness, John 1.16. Now the King's greatness not only comes from his beauty and his grace, but also his power in battle as a warrior. This is pictured by the sword that he puts on. In verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh. Here, and he's called the mighty one. He bears glory. He bears majesty. Now, the term mighty is a title that means the strong one or the valiant one. And just so, Jesus, our king, also is the mighty one because he, according to John 1.14, bears the glory of God. He, too, is armed with a sword, the sword of God's word that comes forth from his mouth, Revelation 1.16. We see in Revelation 19.15 that our King Jesus will employ that sword in battle. As our divine King, Jesus is worshipped in heaven by an innumerable host who give him, what? Glory and majesty. In Revelation 5.12 it says, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." Next, we see this king rides in his majesty. He rides victoriously or successfully. His victories are directed by his character. What is his character? Well, the psalm tells us he is truth, humility, and righteousness. This is how he upholds his covenant relationships. When, he's, when he initiates a covenant, he speaks in truth. And because he is humble and righteous, he will uphold that covenant. When Jesus rode in Jerusalem as our king, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, how did he come? He came riding upon a donkey. He came expressing his humble character. As he was examined and tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and such, it was demonstrated that not only was he a man of humility, but he was a man of trust. And furthermore, after he went through the trials before Pilate and Herod and such, he was, de he was declared a man of righteousness. There's no sin that this man has committed. Again, just as our psalm tells us, he is truth, he is humility, he is righteousness. Now it says that the king's right hand teaches awesome things. The term awesome things can literally be rendered as mighty acts. And it refers to the great deeds that the king does. The right hand is a symbol of the king's might in battle. He bears the sword in his right hand. And so when he draws his bow, his arrows find their mark. It tells us here that they are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. In other words, he pierces them right through the heart, drops them on the battlefield. All of his enemies fall before him. Again, this picture is fulfilled by Jesus who reigns at God's hand, exercising victory, exercising authority, exercising the very power of God. The arrows of his word broke the power of his enemy in, through his public ministry. Remember, at the command of Jesus, men dropped what they were doing and followed him. At the command of Jesus, the sick were healed. At the command of Jesus, the demons were cast out. And the book of Acts witnesses the extension of Christ's kingdom into the rest of the world. And now we come to verse 6, to the central issue. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
Now, Paul used this verse in Hebrews 1, 8, and he saw it as both prophetic and messianic. He, he used it to address the Son of God, and by addressing the Son of God as God, he makes the Son of God equal to God because he is God. Verse 6, your throne, O God. That's Elohim he's addressing. Verse 7 is addressed to the reigning king in the original context. So verse 6 is prophetically addressed to the Son of God, the coming messianic king. And also verse 7, not only is it addressed to the reigning king in the original context, but it's also prophetic in that it applies to the messianic king, Jesus Christ. And we have to understand in Old Testament prophecy, often we have a double meaning. We have the immediate context, and then we have the prophetic context. And that's a lot of Old Testament prophecies like that. You'll have an event happening in the present, and that event is used to depict a future event. We see this in the book of Daniel with the description of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, that was a real historical event being recorded in the book of Daniel, though it was still future. But Antiochus Epiphanes, who did horrific things to the Jewish people, uh, not the least of... Uh, desecrating the temple and the altar and so forth, he becomes a type of the Antichrist and what the Antichrist will do in the, mid, uh, in the middle or in the midst of the tribulation. So Old Testament prophecy has a near and far meaning. And that's what we have here. Verse 6 is talking to Elohim, also applied to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, a description of the current king, but also prophetic of the Messianic King, Jesus Christ. And when verses 6 and 7 are fulfilled by Christ, they will apply equally to Him. Now God's throne is in heaven. It's eternal. It's forever and ever. The sign of His kingdom is His scepter. The word scepter in the Hebrew is a military weapon. Here it's a scepter of righteousness or of, of, of justice. In other words, His reign is going to be exercised in what? In righteousness. Which reminds us of the prophecy of Isaiah 9 and verse 6 and which depicts the righteous character of Christ the King, and how he's going to govern. This earthly king and the Messiah both love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Now this anointing is a reference to the coronation of the king. The oil of gladness was used in the ceremony itself, but the oil of gladness was also a picture of the Holy Spirit. When David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 13 by Samuel, oil was poured upon his head and the Spirit of God came upon him. At Jesus' baptism, when he began his messianic ministry, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3, 15 to 17. And how often is the Holy Spirit identified with joy or gladness? Galatians 5, 22. So the oil of gladness is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so here the king receives an extravagant portion of oil, more than your companions. So having described God's throne, his scepter, and his anointing, verse 8 now pictures the king's garments. They are scented with myrrh. That's a solid or gum resin from a thorny shrub. Uh, aloes is a substance from the sandalwood tree used in perfumes and incense. And cassia is an aromatic bark used in perfumes. The garments also come from ivory palaces. That's palaces decorated with ivory. And the mention of myrrh should remind us of the wise men's gifts to Jesus when he was an infant. 
We also need to remember that Jesus was anointed with costly oil before his death, and his body was anointed with spices when he was buried. Now we come to verse 9 to 15, and we're introduced to the royal bride. The royal bride. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She'll be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. And so here the psalmist is describing the king's attendants or the king's daughters. That Literally, it could be depicting the ladies of the harem. And here is the queen standing in the place of honor at the king's right hand. She's adorned with gold from Ophir. Now, Ophir is Saudi Arabia. Now, if we look at this passage in light of both the Old and the New Testament and, and the theology of those testaments, we can discern the following truths. First, this earthly king represents and manifests the heavenly king, God himself. So verse 6 spoke of God's throne where his sovereignty scepter and, and scepter are revealed in righteousness. Likewise, the earthly king is to manifest God's righteousness in his reign. And so Jesus proclaims the presence of God's kingdom in his ministry and makes his kingdom known by defeating the demonic enemies, by restoring uh, the, and, and healing those who are uh, ill and blind and deaf and so on. Second, based on God's righteousness, the king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We saw that demonstrated throughout Jesus' ministry. Third, the king is anointed with oil as Jesus was anointed with God's spirit and the king smells of rich spices which also played a role in Jesus' life. And finally, next to the king stands the queen sharing his authority and beauty. Jesus' queen is his church. That's us. The bride that he has purchased to present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And the church, you and I as the church, are going to share in his authority. And according to Ephesians 2.6, we are going to be seated with him and reign with him. And so as the psalmist now turns to the queen's preparation for marriage, he adopts a wisdom-teaching mode. This is where the didactic where the masculine aspect comes in. Listen, O daughter. The first point to the new queen is that she needs to forget her own people and her father's house. Now, her own people refers to another nation. In other words, this queen is a foreigner. And she has to leave behind her tribe, her extended family. She is called upon to break with her old identity and with her old ties. Listen, when we as the church come to Christ, there must be a death to our past. We need to leave behind the old man. We need to leave behind that old family, if you will, where Satan reigns and rules, where Satan is the father of all lies and liars. 
We must put that past to death. We must hate that old life and leave it behind, totally forget it, and move forward in love with Christ. The king will long for his bride. He will greatly desire or be passionate for his bride on the condition of what? That she has left the old life behind. That's why we're told that we have to crucify the old man. We have to put it to death. We have to become new creatures. And therefore, as being new creatures, he can love us. He can have passion for us. And that's why as new creatures, we can't go back and carry around that old dead flesh, that old dirty, filthy, smelly garments. We want to make sure that we've prepared ourselves and that the king, when he looks upon us, will have passion for us. Literally, the king will want to consummate the marriage. And the queen in return will submit to her king as Lord and bow down to him or worship him. Similarly, when we come to Christ as his bride, we're to bow and worship before him. Look at Thomas. He submitted to the risen Lord and confessed, My Lord and my God, John 20 and 28. Now it tells us that the king will be courted by rulers and powerful people. The daughters of Tyre will bring a gift. The rich will seek your favor. Now, daughter here refers to princesses uh, from this trading kingdom north of Israel. And so when we look forward, because again, this is prophetic, we're looking forward to the Messianic kingdom. In In the Messianic kingdom, the kings of the earth will bring their glory and their honor before Christ and us as the church. Revelation 21, 24, and 26. Again, we need to remember who is the church, the meek, who will inherit the earth. Now the queen, the royal daughter, is ready for the presentation. She is all glorious in her clothing, woven with gold. She's wearing the robe of many colors she has brought before the king. Her attendants, the virgins, her companions who follow her, enter the king's palace with gladness and rejoicing. And likewise, the church, we're going to be clothed in robes, robes that are white and spotless, washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14. We will be made ready to be married to Christ. And at the end of the age, there's going to be great rejoicing in heaven. Now, if we take the prophecy uh, that Christ lays out in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the virgins, the virgins don't refer to the church, it refers to Israel. And so who is going to be our attendant at the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's going to be Israel. It's going to be the, uh, the patriarchs, the Old Testament saints, the uh, tribulation saints. They're going to be the ones who are going to be attending to us. And there's going to be great rejoicing as we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb occurs in the, in the heavenlies, in the private of the Father's house, in the privacy of the Father's house. And the marriage will be consummated and then Christ returns to earth with his bride at the end of the seven-year tribulation before uh, the millennial kingdom begins. And then when he ent- after he defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet and, and, and judges the nations, uh, he's going to gather the righteous into his kingdom. And the first event that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom is the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Verse 16 and 17 closes with a prediction. A prediction. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. The prophetic word of God given through the psalmist contains a promise to the queen and the king that the royal line will continue for generations to come. Fathers will pass away, but in their stead they will have sons who will become princes in all the earth. In their, this verse is clearly eschatological, especially in light of 2 Samuel seven sixteen and the Davidic covenant. And basically, it begins with the promise that there is going to always be a throne, there's always going to be a people reigned over, and there's always going to be a king, and that king is going to be a descendant, but that seed will go on. In other words, it wasn't Solomon or any of his other descendants, it was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But that Jesus Christ would go forth, and his, he would have sons, if you will, and those sons, or those descendants, refers to his followers, who will inherit the earth. God is also going to make the king's name to be remembered in all generations. That is, he'll be praised by all peoples. The, the word people here in Hebrew is actually plural. Uh, it's a fullness of people. And their thanksgiving is going to be forever and ever. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, John proclaims to the church that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This wedding psalm celebrates Jesus the king, the final king, who will come and claim his bride forever. Here then is a good theme, as the psalmist said at the beginning. Here is what should make our hearts overflow with joy. And so the one remaining question we must ask, are we ready? Are you ready for your groom to come and take you as his bride? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this messianic psalm. We thank you for this the prophecy of the psalm, the picture of Christ as our king, the picture of us as the bride. And there, even there in the Old Testament, there is that rich theology of, of uh, kingdom promises for not just Israel, but also the church. We're not, the, we're not Israel. Israel's Israel. And we praise you that you have a plan for them, that you have not forsaken them. But I thank you, Father, that you've also designed a plan for us. And while you will one day receive Israel as your bride, you have set up beside this new body made up of Jews and Gentiles called the church to be the bride of your son. And Lord, we look forward to that great and glorious day when your son comes to claim us as his bride and take us into your house. We look forward to that day when we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will enjoy that wedding reception, surrounded by the nation of Israel and other Gentile nations of redeemed there in the millennial kingdom. And so we thank you for this great and precious promise to know what our future holds, what's in store for us, what's to come. And Lord, it gives us great joy. And so we thank and praise you. 
In the Son's name, amen.